Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me as we get to know our guest. Ava, I'd love to start off at the beginning of your career. If we can go back a little bit, where did things start out for you? My first job after university, so the beginning of everything, was as a crime reporter in Savannah, Georgia, in the US, which is where I lived when I was younger. So I um, was actually hired. I studied journalism at university. I decided when I was 19 that I wanted to be a reporter after having no idea what I wanted to do. I just had this moment. One day I watched All the President's Men, the movie with Robert Redford. And um, I I just thought that's what I want to do. And I I still don't know, looking back, why that was such a, just the moment. It was just this, this inspirational instant where I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. And then I also realized that my family didn't have any money and I wasn't going to a very posh school. And you know, I'd never sort of seen a reporter from my sort of background, but I thought, you know, well, I could at least study it. And then if I fail, I'll fail magnificently. Um, <laughs> so I, I switched journalism. I studied it. I, I, I did, a, I did well in it. Like it, to my amazement, I'd been sort of muddling along as a student until then. And suddenly, suddenly I, I, I did much better. I was, I was sort of, you know, I was, I was in it. I enjoyed it. I, I wanted to be there. So I was hired over the telephone by a newspaper in Georgia. I grew up in Texas. I had never been further than I had been maybe two states away from my house. I, I had to get myself there. It was two days drive in a car. So I had to spend the night somewhere in Alabama. I was terrified. I think I was 21 going on 12. Like I really was a very young 21 year old. And, and this was all like this huge moment of sort of growing up. And um, during the two days it took me to drive to Georgia, um, the police reporter quit his job. And so when I arrived with my cat in a box, I literally walked into the newspaper, sweaty out of my car, carrying a cat. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, um, they told me I was no longer going to be a general assignment reporter, which was, had been the plan, that I would instead be the crime reporter. And was I okay with that? And I thought, wow, you know, this is it. This is my first mm-hmm. My first moment in this business, I have to be adaptable and that sounds great and it sounds dangerous and I'm young and this is what I wanna do. So I said, yeah. And um, that, without having any idea what that meant, I'd never worked for a newspaper. I had no idea what a crime reporter did. Um, So that was the beginning. I I was in a city, fairly small town, maybe, maybe the size of Guildford or a little bit bigger for perspective, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, it had a sudden crime wave. It it was maybe twice the size of Guildford, I suppose. It had a lot of poverty. It had a lot of drugs. And um, this gang moved in and all of a sudden there was just crime everywhere. And my job became became constant. It became, I was the, the main crime reporter. I worked nights. Um, I was the first female crime reporter they'd had. The cops were fascinated by the idea of a woman covering this. And in the end, that worked in my favor. I mean, they did 
underestimate me a little, but also they were quite protective. And also they opened a lot of doors for me. They might not have opened for a man. And so I got, you know, I like to say, I always got behind the crime tape. They always let me behind the crime scene tape. I was in close to where things were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I could then write these really meaty stories. Um, it was quite, it was the best education I could ever have had. And as you were working alongside the FBI, I'm assuming you were among the first few to really arrive at a crime scene. How do you prepare yourself to walk into what is often a hugely traumatic and gruesome setting? It's very strange because I think there's no way to prepare yourself because I, like everybody else, I'd watched. TV and movies, I I knew what it looked like on the screen um, when Hollywood creates Mm -hmm. it. But in reality, it's it's dark, it's noisy, it's hot. There are um, police cars parked all around a big crime scene and their blue lights don't turn off. So you might have eight police cars, eight blue lights swirling, which kind of creates an odd effect so that you things sort of flicker everything you see mm-hmm. flickers so you you see the crowds gathered at the edge of the crime tape in a flicker of light and dark light and dark and um you see the body on the pavement in that same mm-hmm. flicker and the detectives who by then i knew by name so i could kind of tell when i walked up to a crime scene whether a detective would talk to me or not because some mm-hmm. of them wouldn't some wouldn't and um, my focus and the way I think you deal with the, the violence of it is, is finding out what happens becomes such, a, such an important thing to me. It becomes everything. And if you keep your focus as a journalist on that, then you can blank out the bits that your mind yeah. isn't ready to deal with. You, you look at the body so that I can just, you know, look at the body so I could describe it. Um, and then from then, my focus was on first witnesses. I would literally go, if people are standing around the crime tape, I would just walk up and say, I'm from the newspaper. Did anybody see anything? And obviously, nine times out of 10, people are like, I don't want to talk to a journalist. But often somebody would. Somebody saw it. Somebody was upset and wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And from there, I could get the witness perspective, which at least gave me an idea. Because often what witnesses, if they saw it happen, they're in, they're traumatized. So they can tell you bits, but you need to talk to several witnesses in order to piece together the reality of what happened. And all of that's a huge distraction for a reporter, which means I, I could quickly forget that there's a body lying by my left elbow. I could completely, I could just then focus on the people because they are also dealing with this and we're all in this moment together. And then obviously I know the police, I know the paramedics, they, I see them every night. So I could try to tease some information out of the paramedics about if somebody's injured nearby, are they going to survive? How serious is it? If the person died, what what caused that exactly? You know, and that's how I learned that there's two places you can get shot where it's very hard to save you. And one is the head and one is the thigh. You wouldn't think the thigh, but it is, um, there's a a really important artery there Mm -hmm. and it will um, really cause uh, absolute destruction. It's amazing hearing you speak about the, you know, the passion for your work. It's it's hugely inspiring, Avra. And I and I do, I can understand how, you know, witnessing such a horrific crime and such horrific industries, you can almost push that aside to get the job done, um, and to really either seek justice or just to figure out what is going on. 
once you're out of that environment and you go home and you close your front door, do things then hit you? Is there a separation there? How do you leave your work at the front door? I think in my experience, what I saw and what made me want to stop being a police reporter was the the only way psychologically that you handle this is the same way police handle it and paramedics handle it, which is disassociation. Mm -hmm. So you get to where you can't feel much of anything for a crime scene, like that part of your brain to protect you, it shuts down. It just, Mm -hmm. the emotional part simply shuts down. And, um, and it happens unconsciously. I don't think you can control it. Um, You couldn't stop it. I think if you wanted to, and I didn't notice it. Um, Mm -hmm. It just, the first few times I went to a crime scene, it was dramatic and scary. And about the fifth or sixth time I went, it was the job and um, the emotions went. And I do remember a few years, maybe five years into doing that work, being at a really awful crime scene where there'd been several, several, it was a mass murder, there were several dead bodies. And I suddenly unaccountably wanted to weep. Like I found myself tearing up and, um, I thought, okay, I, I think I've, I think I, I, maybe I shouldn't be doing this now mm-hmm. because this, I'm not there, I'm not here to cry, but this is awful. Like, this is truly a horrible thing that has happened. And I was watching all the reporters taking pictures, the TV reporters in particular, I had a hard time with because their job is they also have to look good on camera. So mm-hmm. here they are at a mass murder, brushing their hair and powdering their noses before the camera goes on. And that just suddenly seemed repulsive to me. And mm-hmm. I just thought, I can't do this. I want to do something else. And so I switched beats to do something else. How does your outlook on life and death change? That's a really great question. Because for me, those first few years were an education, not just in, in sort of crime, but in poverty. I understood, I mean, I grew up without much money, but the poverty that I was in the middle of was, was, um, was pretty hideous. I mean, in America, there's not much of a safety net and people struggled at an extreme level and and almost inhuman level. And poverty is intertwined inextricably with crime and poor people are much more likely to be victims of crime. And it's horrific. People are trapped. And so I became aware of that and aware of the fragility of of the lives of people who have less compared to the fragility of the lives of those who have more, like that injustice was so stark to me. Um, It it was, that was my huge, I I feel like those years were, I learned from being the 12 going on 21 year old. um, I grew up very quickly. I learned very quickly. I, um, I suppose in terms of life and death, I worried less about death because I saw so much of it that Mm -hmm. I simply couldn't think about it. And also I was a kid, you know, 21, you know, looking back, I was just a baby wandering around with my notepad and pen. I I Mm -hmm. thought it was all grown up and, um, and, and I wasn't old enough to really absorb these huge realities in a really conscious way. They simply hit me and they just, you know, they just sort of hit me and I was buffeted by them and the, the, um, the information, the knowledge came later. Well, you then came over to the UK and you began working with the British government alongside spies, which which sounds incredible. And I guess we as the general public, we have so many preconceived ideas of what spies are like and what they get up to. But I'm intrigued to know how this differs 
from reality if it does differ. Well, I suppose I should provide some um, transition for how I, <laughs> how I first ended up there, because I do like to say after my years as a police reporter, my career had no particular um, trained trajectory. There was no um, target. I just sort of bounced from um, from job to job. It's more like a like a like an out of control train where it's just stopping where it needs to stop. And so I after I work, quit working as a police reporter, I became a freelance writer and I wrote for papers like the New York Times and the Dallas Morning News and a British publication called Time Out. I wrote for them and they're the ones who ultimately hired me and, and I moved to London to work for them. And I worked for them for five years and it was amazing. And I felt unbelievably lucky. I genuinely stumbled into that job. I did not deserve it. I, I just got happened to be working for Reuters and one thing led to another and bam, suddenly I had this different life. And I worked for them for five fantastic years and then they sort of kind of a little bit went under. As, and so there's, it's not what it was now. It's still there, but it's not it used to, like a very much smaller organization. And here I was um, trying to decide what to do next when a friend I'd worked with at Time Out at the very beginning, like four years before, who had left and I hadn't heard from her since, um, suddenly got in touch by some coincidence. And I'd look back and wonder if it was a coincidence. Like it was just so extraordinary that she would call me at that time out of the blue. And she said um, she was working for the government and she was looking for somebody to work with counterterrorism who wouldn't be afraid of it. And she thought of me. Um, and that was such a, an introduction to a job that I suddenly thought I can't say no to this. All of this seems so serendipitous and odd. I have to try it. Absolutely. So I took it without knowing what it would mean. Um, just again, as with my crime reporting job, again, sometimes I, I do think sometimes you have to like life dangles some opportunity, mad mm -hmm. opportunity in front of you. And if you don't grab it, you'll always wonder what would have happened. So um, I grabbed it, as I always do, and it turned out that what it was was counterterrorism communication, and they wanted somebody to work basically with the spies to get them to communicate directly to the public about terrorism, about what was happening, about dangers, and in the event of a terror attack, to provide guidance, help, and direct communication about where safety was. That was the idea of the job. And um, so the only problem was the spies really didn't want to do it. So I kind of spent five years cajoling, pleading, negotiating, and, um, and doing just watching them work, basically, in the end. They wanted me to sort of understand why there were things they wouldn't do, they weren't ready to do. And because of that, they would crack that door, that absolutely solid door between us and them, just enough so that I could see why they were so cautious. And um, that was that was where I, I sort of learned what I know about them. And what I do know is the usually the, 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 the version of them we see in movies, the James Bonds, the Jason Bournes, um, that's I get it and I love it. I love them, all of them. They're great. Um, and they're definitely a fantasy. The reality is um, that spies need to look exactly like us. They have to, I mean, they are just like us. They, your next door neighbor could be one. Um, for a long time, I thought mine was one. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
they are as ordinary as possible so that they can just blend in and just mm -hmm. exist in this world and get the information they need without anybody ever thinking, hey, I wonder if that guy's a spy. Like that's mm -hmm. the last thing or that woman's a spy in particular. And I can tell you that um, the first spy I ever met fooled me completely. And that was a young woman, she was in her twenties. And when I first started working for the government, um, security clearance where they background check you and make sure you are safe. That's a big project that can take weeks, months, even years. And in my case, because I'm an immigrant, it's even trickier. And so I was not allowed to meet the spies when I first started working and I, I didn't exactly know why. And that was when I met this young woman who became my friend. Um, I just kept running into her. I kept running into her at my favorite coffee shop or on the bus on the way from the station, the same bus I took every day, the coffee shop I went to every morning. It was this series of coincidences and we just became friends for about three weeks. And then she absolutely disappeared from my life, from the home office email account, from, um, from everything. She just wasn't there anymore. And that was when I started doing the actual counterterrorism work. And that's when I realized that she was probably my background check. She was a spy. We'd never been friends. She'd just been finding out if I was who I said I was. I was. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Honestly, Ava, I just think about your, your life experience and I love your outlook on life as well. The way you speak about life dangling, all these different opportunities and these different experiences. And I love that you're so malleable and you're so willing to jump into something just for the experience or just to see what it's about. I think that's an amazing way to, to look at life. It's, it's really, really in inspiring. And I can see you get so much out of the work that you do as well, which is always so incredible to see. I'd love you to talk about, if you can, if you're allowed to, the office that you worked in and what level seven was like because <laughs> this this kind of feels like it's something out of a James Bond movie <laughs> okay so the building I worked in was one of those very modern um new government buildings that it, it I think it was only three years old when I first started working in it it's huge an enormous structure and it had when you to get into the building um you had to be checked 
down to your teeth. Basically, there was uh, an x-ray machine and you walked into a kind of, they were pods, really. You walked, a door would slide open as you approached. You'd step into the pod. The door you'd walked through would close behind you while the door in front of you was still open. Then three to five very long seconds would pass. And then the other door would open and admit you to the building. And all of us who worked there wondered what happened in those three to five seconds. What was that about? That's a really long time when you're in a glass coffin. Um, but the door would open and let you in to this, this huge atrium. And in the atrium, you could see all the way to the top floor, every floor. It was all open plan. The office was open plan all the way from one end of the building to another, all the way from the bottom to the top, except for the seventh floor. And the seventh floor had blast proof glass that was blackened so you could see nothing on the inside. And that was where the spies were. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And was this, is this a sort of an office or a, a workspace that, you know, anyone could walk past if, if they were visiting the UK? If I'm assuming, was it, was it, I'm assuming it's in London, but is this something that is public knowledge? Do people know where this is or just does this look like any other building in the city? It looks like any other building. You'd never look at it twice. There are these <laughs> big offices everywhere and you'd never think about it. It's just another yeah. office building. Think how many there are and, you know, it's in London. Yeah. It's true. And I know it was very normal for your workplace to receive a number of bomb threats every day. Has your line of work made you more perceptive to danger in your everyday life? And is that ever a struggle for you? Do you feel like you know or you see or you've seen too much? Actually, do you know what? When I first started working for the government, it was shortly after the 7-7 bombings in London Mm. on the underground. And I was really anxious. I think everybody was at that time. I I wouldn't take the tube anymore. I would only take walk, take buses. I was um, was very afraid. Um, It was such an anxious time. And working with these people, these men and women who do this work completely changed my approach, my attitude Mm -hmm. over the course of the first year. um, I just, I just, lost my fear to a certain extent because I knew then these incredibly talented, incredibly brave, very smart people who literally spent all day trying to think like a terrorist. If I wanted to blow something up, what would I blow up? And then they would go to that place and figure out how to make it harder to do damage. And this is when all these bollards went up everywhere um, that we don't even really notice. We're so used to them walking down the streets in major cities in the UK. So, but across it in Birmingham, Manchester and Liverpool and London, they put up protections, various protections, Mm. um, just different things, things to stop cars, things to stop people, things to stop bombs. They were extremely effective and they still do it. I was someplace just a few weeks ago um, near near Tower Bridge Mm -hmm. and I saw all these shiny new bollards on this particular stretch of street and I thought, it's really good you're still at it like (laughs) (laughs) I just I felt better we are such you know as a nation because Mm of you know sort of what we do who we are where we are we're we're a target it's it's always been an attractive target and this these people they are relentless in protecting us this is just they really 
this is their thing and they're good. And that mm. changed my thinking. I started taking the tube about a year later because I thought, honestly, if these guys who know everything take the tube, I'm yeah. taking the tube. You know, if they're not scared, I'm not scared. Yeah, it, it made me feel much more confident. And I know things, it's a scary world, but um, but it's it, it, good people are doing good work out there. I want to talk a little bit about your writing as well, because you're a hugely talented author. What made you decide to channel your lived experiences into your writing? Mm, you know, I didn't write about that world for quite a while. I, I quit working there in 2013. So, um, so I, I, and I thought, and there is a five-year moratorium where you can't write about that if you've been in there anyway. And it never occurred to me to do it. I just thought, um, I, I couldn't think of a hook. Spy fiction is so specific. And I'd read Le Carre, I'd read Bond. There's not much for women in those books. And there's uh, there's not much, um, I don't know, There's in terms of female characters, there's not much to for me to look at and say, yeah, that's something I could do. Um, I wrote other things under another name. I wrote other books, um, crime books mostly, and, and a young adult series. Um, I just, I, I bided my time. And then one day in 2019, I was watching them. I was on a flight to New York all by myself. Um, I had absolutely nothing to do for nine hours. It was, I was wide awake, I couldn't sleep. And um, one of the films they were showing was Speed the Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock film. Mm -hmm. And um, it's great. It's so clever. And as a writer, I can look at it and just think, ah, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. The idea there's, okay, so the, the concept is there's a bomb on a bus and if the bus goes below 50 miles per hour, it will explode. I mean, come on, that's so smart. So like as a film, like you're on the edge of your seat, but they don't have to do anything. They could just drive yeah. And you'd watch wondering when it's going to blow yeah. up, when they're going to stop. It doesn't matter. Um, but the characters are charming and, and interesting and you want to spend time with them. And as I was watching it, being jealous of the person who came up with that idea, um, I started thinking about how it could be uh, redone. And I wondered, it, to me, it, seemed more, it would be more interesting if it were gender flipped. So what if the mm -hmm. woman were rescuing the man? And, um, and that, that, because that brings tensions that it shouldn't, but it does. And um, and then what if it wasn't cops? Because I find um, police procedurals quite hard work as a writer. There's a lot of intense research in that, but I do know a little bit about spies. So then I was thinking, well, bomb spies, they go together like love and marriage. I should um, <laughs> take a look at that. And so after the movie finished, I still had six hours on this flight. <laughs> so it's catched out an idea for a novel. And then when we landed, while I was in immigration, I emailed it to my agent and um, she emailed me back by the time I got to my hotel and just said, I like that idea. Women don't read spy fiction, but I think you should write it anyway. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I did. And that was The Chase, which is my first MMA piece novel. And now um, I've written The Traitor, which comes out in September. I am very excited about you publishing your second novel, The Traitor, coming out this September. What can we expect, Ava? Well, I really wanted, okay, this book was inspired by something that really happened, which is about 10 or so years ago, a young MI6 analyst was found dead in his flat in London. His body was inside a suitcase that was locked from the outside and the police 
said it was suicide. And I don't think anybody in London believed them. <laughs> and um, anybody who was around then, I think when I mentioned this to people, everybody who's, who was around then says, yeah, I never bought that. I've been fascinated by that ever since. So this book starts with something very similar. And in this case, I get to kind of look at through fiction what might have really happened. And so Emma, my main character, who's an analyst who works with both MI6 and MI5, she um, is assigned to follow these two to go undercover with an oligarch who was very close to this person um, as a Russian oligarch who lives effectively on his super yacht. Um, and so in order, the only way to get close to him is to go where he goes. So she goes undercover on a super yacht in the Mediterranean, um, just as one of the, you know, and you know what, I loved doing this because yacht workers are, this is how they get, they hire them through agencies and they're often very young. It's, um, it's such a fascinating world to me. Um, so I got to research super yachts. She's very close to danger. There's no way for anybody to help her out there. She's entirely on her own. Um, for the time that 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 yacht is at sea. And um, so it's very tight um, environment, uh, a lot of danger. And I loved writing the story. Oh, Ava, I am so excited. I'm actually going away at the start of October. So I am getting myself a copy of this because this is going to be <laughs> on my holiday reading list. Thank you so much for speaking to us on this week's episode of Proverbs. I've had the best time. The traitor is out September 14th, so be sure to pick yourself up a coffee. Thank you so much, Daisy. This has been an absolute blast. And that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. That is me. I hope you enjoyed it. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon.